Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit LifePointPB.com. I don't know where we're going this morning. <laughs> um, Jesus knows. Um, I did know earlier in the week I had it all planned out. I knew where we were going. Um, over the last day or so, the Lord's been speaking and stirring, and then last night and even early this morning. Um, so I don't know exactly what all this is going to look like today. But God is definitely stirring. He's moving. And so, Lord Jesus, we just come to you and we say, this is your meeting. This is your gathering. We are your people. We want your message. And I'm not quite sure what that is right now, Lord, but I believe you'll guide as we go through this. So, Lord, I'm going to start where you say, and then we'll see how you lead from there. And Lord, thank you that we can trust you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're moving back to Ephesians after having taken a little brief break in the month of July um, to allow you know, all the travel and vacations and all the things that happen in the summertime, trying to allow the, the church to regather, because I believe what we're going to do in the next few weeks is so vitally crucial in our understanding of what church is and, and what Jesus desires for it to be here in this local place. I'm not going to dive completely in today. I, I believe the Lord's got a little different direction, but I am going to go to Ephesians 4, which is where I was intending to go originally. We're going to read through some of that together. I want to tell you this, though. 23, almost 24 years ago, God sent Lori and I down here to Palm Bay, Florida. Um, I know he sent us. We did not choose it. We did not look on a map and say that's where we want to go. Uh, we weren't like Tom Smiley and his friends who were out in Dallas and there were three inches of snow on the ground and they got a job offer in Melbourne and said, we'll take it. Um, you know, that we weren't like that. Okay. We were not planning on coming to Florida. I had never thought of living in Florida. I'd only been to Florida once in my entire life prior to that. Um, it was not a place where we had family or friends or connections in any way. And you can look at me and tell I am not a beach person. Okay. All right. We, our family, we go to the beach when everybody else is leaving. We're, we're like vampires. We go at night. Um, and so it's just, you know, Either that or we have to take a gallon of sunscreen and it's just not worth all the effort. So, um, so God sends us down here and we come. There's no doubt the Lord makes that clear that we're supposed to be here. Through the years, he's continued to make that clear. But when I came, when Lori and I came together, but I'm, I'm talking more about me because Lori is naturally more gracious and humble and spirit. I mean, she just... If somebody could get saved without Jesus, it would probably be Lori, all right? Um, that would not be me, all right? I would not. I need Jesus, all right? Everybody needs Jesus, but I really need him. Um, there's no way I'd get saved without him. Um, and so when we came down here, um, I came full of self. Um, young guy, almost 30 years old, had different experiences, in different places around the world and here in the United States. Um, knew a lot of stuff, had a lot of information. Really felt like I was God's gift to this church that we were coming to down here. 
And, and in one sense, that is true, but not the way I thought. Um, because God does give us gift in the form of people, uh, but not the way I thought. And so as we came down and began to wrestle through church life and experience, and I quickly realized that I didn't have all the answers, or, well, I thought I had all the answers, but other people realized I didn't have all the answers. And it was a difficult first church experience, and mainly because of me and what God wanted to do in my life and what he was committed to doing in my life. But it was challenging and difficult. And after about two and a half, almost three years, they said, we don't really need your services anymore. And, um, and so we're trying to walk through all that. And as I shared in prayer this morning, I was not humbled at that time. I was humiliated. There is a difference between being humiliated and humbled. The Lord wants to humble us. He wants us to humble ourselves. Humiliation is a whole nother thing. And it's usually because I'm not willing to be humbled. And so I'm just humiliated. But as we walk through all of that, God led us here to what at that time was First Baptist Church, um, now Life Point Church. And as we were walking through that journey, I still had my mind of what church was supposed to look like. This is what Jesus' church is supposed to look like. And it was very, very clear to me and very planned out. And it, you know, church, the way Jesus intended it, it's, it has powerful worship. And it's growing and it's building and they're accomplishing a lot. And they're, you know, it, it's impressive. It's not insignificant. It's an impressive thing. And people look at it, whether, whether Christians or non-Christians, they look at it and they're impressed by it. And they're just thinking, I want to join up. I want to be part of that thing. That's so impressive what's going on. I want to be, how do I get in? If you haven't noticed, the world's not knocking on our door figuring out how to get in. All right? If our goal was to be so impressive that they just couldn't stay away, that's not happening. But I don't think it was ever intended to happen. That's not the early church as we see it. It says that there were those daily being added, but it also says there were many who were afraid to become part. They didn't want any part of it. And there will always be that. So I had these images in my mind of what church was supposed to be like and what people were supposed to be like. I was going to be the CEO of this large, growing important looking church. I didn't necessarily want to deal with people. People are annoying. And, you know, I don't deal with people. Um, I need an office and I need two or three secretaries between me and the people. I mean, you can't, you can't do that. And then the Lord, and God has a sense of humor because this is my thought process. So in the old building, if you've never been in the old building, I become senior pastor. My office is a thoroughfare. The only way you can get from the sanctuary back to the fellowship hall is through my office. All right. So my idea of being separated and isolated and having secretaries to buffer, it doesn't work because my, basically my office was a hallway. God does have a sense of humor. One of the nice things about that office though, God gives gifts even in the midst of difficult things. It had a certain kind of window treatment on it that people would stand outside my window and they didn't know I could see them. They couldn't see me, but I could see them. Oh man, it was entertaining. I could have charged money for the things that went on outside that window. It was, it was fun. Um, but so there's good and bad and everything. God's doing a work. He's reshaping what I think church is supposed to be. See, here's the, here's the problem. Here's the place where I've landed in, in these years is that God never intended for me to have a vision for his church. 
He never intended for me to have a vision for his church. He's already got that vision. It's his church. He knows what he wants it to be. He knows what life point's supposed to look like. I don't. He knows what he's doing here. He knows who he's bringing here. He knows how he's working here. I don't often. I'm usually playing catch up. I'm just trying to be observant. As one writer said, and I thought it was so good, a true visionary pastor is one who sees what God's doing before everybody else. There's a lot of truth in that. It's not me making it up or figuring it out. It's me seeing what he's doing rather than trying to imprint my stamp on something that's so different than what God had in mind. So what does God's church look like? This is the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, really, some have called it the constitution of the church. It allows you to see, do you realize Ephesians is the only letter that we have written to a church that's not corrective in some way? Every other letter that was written was corrective, but there's no correction that we see in the book of Ephesians. Now, that doesn't mean Ephesus was perfect, far from it. It just means in this letter, it had a different purpose. Paul was doing something different in the book of Ephesians. The Holy Spirit was doing something different in the book of Ephesians than he was anywhere else. And he was saying, I want you to see underneath. I want you to see what everybody tends to miss. We tend to see all the superstructure. He says, I want you to see what's happening underneath. This is the heart and soul of my church. So what does that look like? Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read some of this together. And then I'm going to go a different direction, I think, than what I planned. But we're going to read it anyway. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I love that. Walk according to the calling to which you've been called, not according to your own made-up vision. Not according to your own plan. You've been called to a calling. I've already got the calling. I've already got the plan. I've already got it laid out. I want you to walk worthy. I want you to walk honestly, sincerely, enthusiastically in the way that I've designed for you to walk. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We could spend the next year just on those couple verses. And still not unpack it all. Eager, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right? There's so much in that. But he's basically, in those first six verses, he said, here's the atmosphere when, we, when Jesus thinks about his church, he said, here's the atmosphere. Because every church is going to be different. We are not Calvary Chapel. We are not Covenant. We're not First Melbourne. We're not, we're LifePoint. Every church is unique and different. And they're different. And what God is doing and what his call is looks different in every place. It's supposed to. There's not one letter in Revelation. There's seven. Seven churches, seven letters. And here's our problem often in American church culture. We keep trying to copy everybody else. We try to be everybody else. No, be who God called you to be. I want to be the best life point we can be, but I don't want to be anybody else. So here's the deal. Now I have to figure out, okay, Lord, what is life point supposed to look like? What is, what is common to all of us? What should be seen no matter where the church is? Because that's what he's doing. When we're talking about a constitutional document, we're talking about things 
When we talk about the Constitution of the United States, we all fall under it. Now, it looks different in Florida than it does in South Dakota in some of its application. But it's the same document. There are certain principles that are the same. So what are those principles? He just laid it out. He said, here's a culture that I want to see in my church. I want this atmosphere. I want this humility, this gentleness in the way that you deal with one another, this way that you strive for unity, the way that you're preferring other people. This is the atmosphere that I want to see. This is the foundation, if you will. In this atmosphere, you're going to see God do all kinds of things. And it'll look different in different places, but the atmosphere is the same. People ought to be able to sense that atmosphere. They ought to be able to come into a group of believers and sense that atmosphere and say, this is a church. This is the church. This is the body of Christ. What did they say to the disciples? They said, these men have been with Jesus. They knew it. There was something different. And I'll tell you, when you find humility and gentleness and a striving for unity and a caring about other people more than you care about yourself, that's unusual. It stands out in this culture. So here's this atmosphere that he created. The next section, which I'm going to skip right now, which is verse 7 through 13, because we're going to spend a lot of time there in the next few weeks. He begins to say, okay, here's some practical things that are going to happen in this culture, in this atmosphere that you have. Here's some things that you're going to see that I have placed, gifts that I have placed within the body, and they're going to begin to operate in certain ways. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time looking at those and talking about them. But I want you to skip with me down to verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or womanhood or adulthood, really, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is he saying? He's saying he wants you, he wants you and me to grow up and look like Jesus. That's what he's saying. We're going to grow up and all of the fullness of Christ expressed in us. That's an overwhelming thought. All the fullness of Christ expressed in you and me. All of his love, all of his wisdom, all of his gentleness, all of his mercy, all of his care. All of his reproof hid the truth spoken in love that he would do. The fullness of Christ expressed in you and me. Grow up. The goal of the church, Jesus' goal for his church is that it grow up. That's his goal. I'm not making this up. Keep reading with me. Verse 14, so that they may no longer be children. Why? Because children are little. They need to grow up. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. There's that phrase again. Into, in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So we don't grow up according to our own design. We grow up into a predetermined DNA, something that's already been laid out for us. Our children are born, they grow up, but they don't grow up in the way that we design. They grow up in a predetermined DNA pattern that they already have. Now, there are certain things that are shaped and added, all that kind of stuff, but this predetermined pattern is already there. That's the reason when the scripture talks about in the Old Testament, train up a child in the way she goes. Some translators, because of the Hebrews, say train him up in the way of his bent. Train her up in the way of her bent. She's already bent a certain way. He's already bent a certain way. Don't try to change the bent. Don't try to take them in a totally different way. Someone asked me the other day, you think Andrew will be a pastor? I said, oh, I hope not. All right? <laughs> and I say that tongue-in-cheek. This is not... 
This is the most wonderful thing in the world if God calls you to it. And if he doesn't, you better run away. And, but that's true of most callings. It's the most wonderful thing in the world if God's called you to it. And if not, you ought to go the other way. But here's the thing. I recognize Andrew's very different than I am. And I love, the, I, I love certain parts of it. Some of it I, in my flesh keep trying to change. And then I have to adjust and realize he has a bent. He has a way. I need to help him deal with things that are character issues. But if it relates to his bent, I don't need to change that. And I need wisdom from the Lord to know the difference. It's true with all of my children. It's true with your children. It's true with one another. With each of us, we have a bent. So we need wisdom to discern, is this a character issue? Is this a spiritual issue? Or is this part of the way God bent us? The way he designed us? The way he called us? Angela going where she's going is part of her bent. Diana can't say, you know, I just I put my foot down. You can't do that. No, that would be trying to change the bent. He goes on. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we grow up into every way into the head, into Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. I love a joint because a joint is a place where two or more things come together. By every joint, which means you can't do this thing alone. If you're going to be the Lone Ranger Christian, there is no such thing. They don't exist. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian in a Lone Ranger church. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto and Silver. All right? So there is no such thing. Even the Lone Ranger wasn't a Lone Ranger. All right? <clears throat> From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly... Listen to what happens. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It is growing, but it's not necessarily growing the way we as Americans like to look at growth. It's growing in love. It's growing in how they love one another, how they care for one another, how they love people who aren't part of their group. It's growing. It's building itself in this way. And so Jesus said, this is my church. This is my vision for church. You say, well, how many go to you? I get, that's the number one question I get asked as a pastor. How many go to your church? And I tell them, I honestly don't know. Ask Aaron. He knows. All right? I don't know. Because he keeps record of all that kind of stuff. I don't care. I, I used to care, and it messed me up. I would come into a service, and there would be, you know, this morning most of the seats are filled. But if we had 40 or 50 seats empty, it would mess me up. Where are they at? Are they on vacation? Did they get mad? Did I say something? What, what happened? Where are people at? God had to deal with me. And he said, Troy, is this your church or my church? Well, I think it's, well, I know the right answer. All right. <laughs> I'm not sure I believe it, but I know the right answer. So I don't keep track. People ask me, honestly, I don't know. People talk about how much money did you, is your church? What's your church budget? And I, I don't know. I don't care. They just tell me when there's not enough. And I, and I pray. I say, Lord, there's not enough. So what do you want to do? Honestly, that's how we do finances around here. I don't know. I don't sign checks. I don't look. They give me little sheets. I don't even look at them half the time. Not that I, I don't. Not, not, <laughs> not that I don't appreciate their hard work. Okay. <laughs> but here's the truth. And an older, wiser pastor told me this one time. He said, Troy, if you put people in, people in positions of responsibility and then do their job, then they are not necessary. So if they're capable, put them there and then leave them alone. Which is what I do. Leave them alone. 
They're good at what they do. God's gifted, given wisdom. I just pray for them. But again, God says, I've got a way I want to do church. I didn't understand any of this when we started doing church. None of it. I thought I had to be the CEO. And so I read all these leadership books and figure out how to do it. You know, how does Lee Iacocca do it or whoever, you know, he's long gone now. But, you know, how does, you know, whoever it might be. Whoever's new now, I guess, not even Steve Jobs anymore, but, you know, whoever, might be Bill Gates, whatever. This isn't Microsoft, folks. This is the church of the living God. It's not supposed to be run like Microsoft. It's not supposed to look like Microsoft. This is a hard thing, though, because as we go through Ephesians, you all are amen right now, but there are going to be some omis as we get further into this, because the, <laughs> the practical application of it's hard. It's going to get at the core of who you are, where you find your identity, what makes you feel significant and important. I had to get there. I had to get to the place where it didn't matter the size of the building or the newness of the building or the number of people in it or how much money we had or what we were doing. My identity couldn't be found in that. It didn't matter. That I could honestly believe that if four people are gathered together and the, and the Holy Spirit's at work there, that's just as vital and important as 5,000 were gathered. But to really believe that in your heart of hearts, God has to do a work. He did in me. But he says, I've got a vision for church, and it will build itself up. It will grow. Do you realize the church is still here after 2,000 years of us messing it up? It's still here. 2,000 years of us finding every way imaginable I mean, we have killed people under, under the banner of the cross and we have put them to death. We have put them on racks and tortured them so they would believe the way we told them they should believe. Under the banner of the cross, all of the mess that has gone on in Christianity, and it's still here. In spite of our greatest attempts to destroy it, it's still here. Why? Because God has a plan. He has a vision. He has a, a blueprint, a DNA model of the church. And he says, my model always works in every culture, in every generation, in every nation. It always works. Here's the thing, though. I have 14 points here, and I feel like I should only give you one. Here's the one point I'll give you today. We're going to have to be willing to allow the Lord to change the way that we look at people in order to really have the DNA, the atmosphere that he designs for us to have. We're going to have to let him do a deep work, a supernatural work, to change the way we look at people. And I'm not just talking about people that you don't know. I'm talking about the people you're sitting with. Don't turn there because you'll remember when I start telling you. But if I were to ask you, when Dr. Luke was writing his gospel, Luke chapter 1 and 2, you remember what's in Luke chapter 1 and 2? You probably do if I remind you. Luke chapter 1, he says he tells us who he is and why he's writing 
And then he starts talking, in chapter 1, he starts talking about John the Baptist and the birth of John the Baptist and how God sends the Holy Spirit and this powerful work he does in pre preparing the way of the Messiah. And then chapter 2, he begins to tell us about the birth of Jesus and how, again, the Holy Spirit comes and makes a way, brings Jesus, brings God into human form into this world. Now, the interesting thing about it is John's very clear as he's writing this. He wants to make sure he gets the details right. He wants to make sure you understand. And so both in chapter 1 with John the Baptist and also in chapter 2 with Jesus, he makes it really clear who the parents are, where they live, what they don't have. They have no political clout. They have no government connections. They don't have wealth. They don't have name. They don't have prosperity. They don't have any of the things that we feel like really make it easier to get anything accomplished in this world. They have none of that. Jesus has absolutely... He could have been born... Matter of fact, he didn't even have to be born. God could have just had his son just come boop here out of the sky and have him going around turning all the bread in Palestine and all the stones into bread and there would be no more hunger. That would be pretty sensational, wouldn't it? He could have gone around filling up all these amphitheaters that Herod was building. He could have filled them up and done all kinds of supernatural circus tricks and people would have said, wow, the presence and power of God. But he didn't do that either. He could have come back as governor, as king. He could have made himself king. And said, so, well, now we'll have some justice in this world. He didn't do any of those things. He comes as a baby to a no-name family in a no-name town in a no-name country. By the way, this isn't a new thing. If you read the Old Testament, God was always doing this. He was always, he told Israel, I didn't pick you because you were special. I picked you because you weren't. If you're here today and you want me to prop up your ego, you're you're, you're sadly mistaken. God did not pick you because you're special. He picked you because you weren't. He chose you because of who he is, not because of who you are. But see, we miss that. We lose that along the way. If I, if I live in that place, there is peace. There is joy. There is a sense of worth and value when I can live there. Somebody will, sometimes people will tell me off. I know it's hard to believe, but they will. They'll tell me off, and they'll tell me I'm not all that special, and I will agree with them. You're right, I'm not. Someone told me, you're not God. No, you're right, I'm not. Not even close. Glad I don't have the job. I'm not him. I don't have to be. I know who I am. I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. That Jesus said is somebody. That I want you. I pick you. Jesus comes into the world that way. Can you guess how the church comes, is birthed and comes into existence? The very same way. See, Luke writes his gospel in Luke chapter 1, chapter 2. He's telling us how John the Baptist comes along and the Holy Spirit's working there. And how the Holy Spirit comes literally on the womb of Mary. And Jesus is born. The Holy Spirit doing his work. And what happens in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2? The, whole, the same Holy Spirit, 30 years later comes literally into the spiritual womb of, that, of those gathered believers and he birthed something that was insignificant. Had no political power, no government clout, no money, no prestige, no image. As a matter of fact, on the day of Pentecost when they're speaking, everybody looks around and said, aren't these guys Galileans? 
from Mississippi, we say, aren't they a bunch of rednecks? They weren't impressive by the world standard. They were nobodies. Can I let you in on a secret? God's plan has never changed. He wants to take nobodies and do something unimaginable in and through them so that he receives glory. And that plan has never changed. It has never changed. We keep trying to make ourselves somebody, to build ourselves up in some way. And the Lord says, I don't use people who build themselves up. I need nobodies. I need people who recognize, both they and everybody else recognize, they couldn't do it. They don't got it. But I can do it in. We don't see people this way often. I didn't. I'll be honest with you. My early years in ministry, I did not see people that way. People were a means to an end to accomplish a goal. And if you could help me, great. And if you couldn't, get out of my way. And the Lord says, I've got a DNA that I want my church. I want it just to, I want it to flow in my church. Where we esteem others better than we esteem ourselves. Where we see value. All right. I'm going to meddle a little bit here and then I'm going to close. Right? This means that that person who gets all over your nerves that's sitting in this room right now, I don't believe God wants you to run away from them or find a way to avoid them. Let me ask you a question. Could it be that Jesus' vision of a church would look exactly like what this one looks like right now? That that's his plan? Our vision looks different. Lord, we need a few different people. If we could get this person and lose that one, all right, then this would be a good church. And Jesus says, no, you got the church that I designed. This is my church. I put these people here. I designed it. That person that you find so difficult to love, well, now it's going to take supernatural power at work in you to be able to get over yourself and to love in spite of whatever it is that's bothering you. That person, you see them coming, you think, oh, they talk too much, and I don't want to talk to them. And I, I, I can't be the only person who's done this, all right? I can't be the only one who's seen somebody and thought, I don't really want to go there and go the other direction. <laughs> I can't be. My dear wife was caught. This has been years ago, and it was nobody in this room, all right? <laughs> She was in the grocery store. I was with her. I went to fetch something in another aisle. I came back. I looked down the aisle. She was in conversation with someone, and I knew it was a long conversation, and I just went the other way. I didn't even go. And later, she wanders around. She goes, what, what happened to you? I said, I saw, and I just didn't go. She goes, you just left me there. I said, yeah, I did. I'm sorry. I just left you there. I just left you. That may have been practical, but it was not like Jesus, all right? And here's the thing that God keeps doing in me, because you know what I've, I've learned from some of those people that I feel like, okay, you give me too much or too many details. Okay, I learn things as God is doing a work in me and, they, and also helping me understand that. And then there are other people I want to give me more detail, and they don't say enough. And it's like, oh, I don't want to have to pull it out of you. And then I get irritated. And the Lord says, 
This is the church I designed. I want you to love equally well both ways. I want you to be patient and gentle. I don't want you to let people stay in a place that's unhealthy, but I still want you to love and be gentle. It's, it's a tightrope walking through. It's like, Lord, I don't know how to do this. And he says, I know you don't. That's what's so beautiful. You don't know how to do this, but I do. This is my church. This is what I do. Well, Lord, I just, I'm just better. I, here, true confession. How many of you in here would say there are some people, it's just easy for you to be with, and there are other people that are hard. How many would say that? There's not a hand that's not raised, okay? You know what the DNA of the Jesus church looks like? We love anyway. We love anyway. That doesn't mean we excuse sin or bad behavior. It doesn't mean that we overlook things. We, as a matter of fact, we build one another up in love, which means at times we're able to say, hey, have you thought about this? Or what do you think about that? Or this is a struggle. I mean, I know you don't intend it this way, but it's kind of a struggle for me. I mean, we want to pray about this. See what God's answer is in all this. It's a journey that you make together. And it's the fact that you believe that God can work through anybody to build up his church, not just the ones who happen to stand up here on a stage or have an office. You know, one of the reasons I don't have a church office anymore, because I want to demonstrate in every part of my life that I'm nobody. I don't have an office here anymore. I gave it to Paul. He's the somebody now. So if you've got a problem, go talk to him. All right. <laughs> he said the office is up for grabs anybody that wants it we're renting out space now we are all nobodies who know somebody who said I'll take you nobodies and do the miraculous if you could see people that way if I could see people that way now you won't do that on your own and you're not going to always be successful you're going to mess up probably before you get home today. You're going to mess up. All right? You're going to mess up. And you come back and say, Lord, I messed up. He goes, I know. It's okay. We're going, we're doing this together. I got you. I will give you what you need if you'll receive it. If you're willing to lay down your vision and embrace mine, I'll give you what you need. It's not easy. It's not always pretty. As a matter of fact, it's easier usually to run away and start fresh. I have tried that on multiple occasions. Lord, please let me leave and just run away. And he said, no. He said, you can go, but you're just going to have to face it again wherever you go. Because the problem's not out there. It's in here. I used to think you all were the problem, but you're not. <laughs> I'm the problem. All right? <laughs> that was not the appropriate place for an amen. <laughs> All right. I want you to bow your heads. Lord, would you come play? I want you to do something with me right now. I want you to just sit before the Lord. And um, music will begin to play, and the team, whoever needs to be up there, can go. Um, but I just want you to sit before the Lord.
I want you to ask him, hey, Lord, is there anything anything that's been said this morning that was for me and I may not have said as a matter of fact probably the thing that you heard the loudest was not something I said it was something the Lord said to you but it was the loudest thing you heard all morning I'm often amazed how that works people will come up and say thank you for saying this I'm thinking I don't remember saying that but it's what you heard so I promise you this morning the Lord said things to you that he wants you to hear If you're like me, I'll just tell you my own experience. When the Lord does that, I start with a bunch of buts. But Lord, they're hard. They're difficult. Everybody knows they're difficult. Lord, I don't like it that way. Lord, it'd be better if this way. Lord, why don't you just change it and make it like this? Lord, but, but, you can do that, but it's been my experience that um, it doesn't really get me anywhere. It's easier just to come and say, okay, Lord, I don't understand or I don't like, but I hear you. And I'm willing to surrender and have you do a work in me. Believing you're also going to work on the other side of the equation. That's, you're a good mathematician. You work both sides of the problem. see people the way you see them.